Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on Easter Sunday, 2021. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 8 through 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, never has the wage been more due to the worker than death and hell are due to me. And so, Father, fill our hearts with praise as we reflect on all that is accomplished by Christ's death and resurrection as planned by your eternal purpose. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday is a glorious day in the Christian calendar where we remember the death of Christ, as we did on Friday, and we then celebrate the resurrection of Christ, as we do today. This is a day where we focus on the primary things in the Christian story. And that means if if you are new to Christianity and you've just heard that we are celebrating the death and resurrection of the God-man Jesus Christ, Christ, then you realize that the Christian story is the story of a grand miracle, not explained by the laws of nature, but explained by the God of the laws of nature. The Christian story asserts that he who is beyond space and time, he who is uncreated and therefore eternal, came into nature, indeed came into human nature, descended into the universe that he made died and rose from the dead, all with the purpose of rescuing his people. And so you might hear that sketch of the Christian story, and you might think, well, if God even exists, why would God do that? And you might think, and if God is going to do that, what is it intended to accomplish? Well, the Bible is the book that answers that question, and in the Bible, that question is answered thoroughly. And today we're going to look at just a part of the answer to that question. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in particular verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, first, that God's eternal purpose and grace are made known to us through Jesus Christ. And second, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us how we, living in space and time, can connect to God's eternal 
purpose. And so we need to really focus our attention on verses 9 and 10. I invite you to look at it with me. It reads, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Let's pause for a second. It says, before the ages began, which means this purpose of God is an eternal purpose. So back to the verse, it says, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is vital that we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fullest and clearest manifestation of God's eternal purposes. We have to get that. That's the big idea of verses 9 and 10. And so I'm asking, as we read verses 9 and 10, do you understand what that means? I'm asking, do you get this? Do you see this? Do you understand this? And I want you to look at it again. Verses 9 and 10, allow it to sink into your heart so that it stays there. It says, verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we see here in verse 9 something of God's eternal purpose being revealed to us, and in God's eternal purpose, realized in space and time through the appearing of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished for you, if you believe, He has accomplished for you the whole of your salvation. And in particular, I want you to notice in verse phrase, this phrase, uh, verse 10, this phrase, Christ abolished death. Christ abolished death. And so when we talk about the Christian gospel, there's really two central events there. It's the death of Christ, and then it's the resurrection of Christ. And we, through faith, are united to Christ and all that Christ accomplished. Which means, through faith, we have union with what Christ accomplished in His death. And in His death, He offered Himself as the sacrificial lamb in His flesh, absorbing the just wrath of God for our sin. Which means through faith in Christ, what Christ accomplished in His death, we too have accomplished in His death. And so the penalty for our sin is put away. But also through faith in Christ, we're united to the resurrection of Christ and all that is accomplished through the resurrection of Christ. And so when Christ is raised from the dead, not only is it vindicating what happened with his death, but it's also what we see in verse 10, abolished death and brought life and immortality. Which means that through faith in Christ, you're united to what Christ accomplished in his resurrection, which means you too, through faith in Christ, have abolished death. And so verse 10 says that Christ abolished death. And it's that phrase in particular is why this text is an Easter Sunday sermon text. And I want us to understand what it means to, under, to, to, to see that the resurrection of Christ abolished death. 
And it starts by recognizing that we live in a world filled with death. It means that we live in a sinful and fallen world. We live in a sinful and fallen world with sinful and fallen things all around us. And if you've been around Christianity for some time, you know that that's pretty common language. That's part of the, the jargon of Christians. We talk about this openly and regularly, that we live in a sinful and fallen world. And it's a sinful and fallen world all around us. But I want us to really think about what that means beyond just the jargon, beyond just the familiarity of the language. We live in a world of death. And that death comes because of sin. The wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. And so what that means for us as we live our lives is that family members die. It means that friends die. It means that our pets die. It means that our flowers die. It means that everything living in this world dies. And so we live in a sinful and fallen world. That's what that means. It means death. Death is all around us. And it's caused by the sin that's all around us. Yet, God's eternal purpose carried out through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, it says in verse 10, abolishes death and brings life. And so our lives in the 21st century are filled with the continual attempt to distract ourselves from the inescapable reality of living. Namely, that one day we won't be living. But the eternal purpose of God shines into our dark and dying world through Jesus Christ, who overcomes death and brings the light of life, which is, verse 10 says, immortality. And so through faith in Jesus Christ as the substitute for your sin, as the substitute for your inevitable death, we pass out of death into life, no longer existing as strangers and sojourners in a world that is dying, but being fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God. And through faith in Christ, we now have a seat waiting for us with the resurrected Son of God, in the heavenly places where we will lack nothing for full and eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. And my question is, as we read verses 9 and 10, is do you get this? Do you get that Christ abolished death and through faith in Christ you're united to what he accomplished, which means that therefore you abolish death? Do you get this? Do you realize that we through Jesus, have the answer to the world's unanswerable question? Do you realize that we have the cure for the world's incurable disease? Do we realize that through Christ we have defeated that which is undefeated, namely death? Do we realize that through Jesus we have conquered the unconquerable and that our victory is part of the eternal purpose of God, a purpose that is revealed to us in space and time through the living man, Jesus Christ. And yet, we, we who, who genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have moments where we ho-hum Jesus while we fill our lives with lifeless material possessions that have no home 
in the heavenly places for which we are destined. Now, I understand why we do that. I understand why it is that we can become dull and disinterested towards the things of God. I understand that. We live in a sinful and fallen world. That's all we see. We live and breathe in this sinful and fallen world. And I understand how we get wrapped up in that and forget the victory that is ours in Christ. And more importantly for you, the Apostle Paul understands it too. He also understands how we can become dull towards the glorious truth of Jesus Christ. And that's why he reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 25, that we hope for what we do not see. see. See, that's why we as genuine, sincere believers in the Lord can still have moments where we're dull towards the things of Christ. It's because we, have a, we hope for what we do not see, which means what we do see is death and sin all around us. What we don't see with our own eyes, with empirical evidence, is the risen Lord. We haven't seen him. You believe in Jesus Christ raised from the dead, yet you've never seen him. What do you see? Death and sin. And so the Apostle Paul understands how it can be that we preach and believe in this glorious truth where Christ has conquered death, and yet we still have moments where we're dull towards the things of God. Because we believe in that which we have not seen with our own eyes. That's what faith is, as defined by Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance and conviction of things not seen. And so since we haven't seen it, we know it's true, and we preach it, and we sing about it, and we read about it, and we talk about it, but what we see every day is a sinful and fallen world. And so the Apostle Paul understands how we, as genuine believers in the Lord, can become dull towards the things of God. As long as we are slaves to this temporal body and this fallen world, we are, as 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, we are away from the Lord. We're not with the Lord. We're away from the Lord. And so Paul understands it. Paul understands how we can have moments where we're dull towards the things of God. And that's why, back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that's why in verse 9 he would have us lift our eyes up, lift our eyes upward to God's eternal purpose, that we may love Christ whom we have not seen, Peter admits in 1 Peter 1, 8, that we may love Christ, a Christ whom we have not seen with our own eyes, and have faith in Christ who accomplish the eternal delivery of all those who believe in him. And so Paul understands that once we get this, that once we really start to believe that through Christ we have abolished death, the undefeated thing in the universe, Paul understands that once we get this, that creates tremendous energy for the Christian life, the sort of energy that propels you towards a persevering faith. And so what we see here first is God's eternal purpose that is manifested through Jesus Christ, who through his death and resurrection defeated death in a dying world for his people. And what we need to see next is exactly how it is that we, living in space and time, connect to God's eternal purpose. And to see this, I want you to look up to verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 
So Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, and he says this, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so he's writing to Timothy, and he comments on his faith, because Timothy is connected to the eternal purpose of God, which is the saving work of Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus. And it's vital that you see this. It's vital that you see that the way you go to Christ, the way that you crawl into the saving, comforting, life-giving, eternal arms of God Almighty is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I implore you to lift your eyes up to the things above and to trust Christ. And you might say, well, well, I've tried that kind of stuff before. You might say, I've tried to trust people before. I trusted this person or that person, and they let me down. Or you might say, I put my faith in this church or that church, and they let me down, and they hurt me. And you might say, I've tried to trust others before, and it just leads to disappointment. So what life's experiences have taught me is to keep it all self-contained. Trust myself and myself only, because when I become vulnerable and trust another, I get hurt. And I understand that. But I'm not asking you to put your faith and trust in just anybody. I'm not asking you to put your faith and trust in me. And I'm not asking you to put your faith and trust in Trinity Reformed Church. I'm asking you to trust He who is most trustworthy, Jesus Christ, the God-man, raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And for me to ask you to trust Christ is like asking lungs to inhale oxygen. Oxygen is the exact thing that lungs need. I'm not asking lungs to breathe paint fumes or tobacco smoke or mold spores. I'm asking you to trust Christ because you need Christ like lungs need oxygen. And the way you connect to the eternal purpose of God is to put your faith in the death-defeating, sin-destroying, life-giving work of Jesus Christ. There is no other way for you to connect to the eternal purpose of God. Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, it's a narrow gate that leads to the Father, which is to say that faith in Jesus Christ, whom you have not seen, faith in Jesus Christ as the guilt-bearing substitute for your sin, is the way to the Father. Now look at verse 9 again. It says that God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Not because of our works, it says in verse 9. This should be entirely liberating for you. Look at what God's word says tells us we are saved, and that's the word used in verse 9, so we can use that word. We are saved, that is saved from the guilt and punishment of our sin, not because of our works. Your own experiences testify to how liberating this is for you. Because if salvation was based on your works, or if salvation was based on God's foreknowledge of your life, or your works, or your choices, or your morality 
then you would collapse in guilt before the radiant holiness of God. If the color of God's holiness is brilliantly spotless white, then the very best of your works, the very best of your choices, the very best of your morality are a repulsive, forbidding darkness. And so if salvation was based on us, if salvation was based on our works, on our morality, on our choices, or God's foreknowledge of our works, then we would all stand under the just judgment of God. Why? Well, because apart from Christ, through His sovereign Spirit working in your heart, apart from Christ, all people always willingly according to the free expression of their will, all people always willingly choose to disobey God and reject the knowledge of the truth. And so it was left up to you, if it was left up to your works or the desires of your heart, you would reject the Lord and you would disobey the Lord and stand under the just judgment of God. And that is why verse 9 is so liberating. Look at it again. It says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. You see that we are saved not because of our works. So then, according to verse 9, what is the ultimate basis of our salvation? If it's not according to our works, what is the ultimate basis of our salvation? Well, it goes on to say, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so we look at verse 9 and we ask, how are we brought into relationship with this eternal God? Is it because of us? According to verse 9, is it because of us? Is it because of our purpose? Is it because of what we've purposed in our will? Is it because of God's foreknowledge of our purpose and our morality? and our choosing, and our works. No. And thank God it isn't. For I would never purpose in my heart, apart from the sovereign spirits changing it. And you would never purpose in your heart to love God, or to choose God, or to work for God. And if you did such a thing without God initiating it, and making it irresistible for you, well, then that would be works. No, what we see in verse 9 is that salvation is according to God's purpose, not our purpose. Salvation is based on God's purpose and grace. Praise God. Praise God that none of your works entered in. It was because of His own purpose that He called you. Praise God. Thank God. That salvation hangs not on your manifold weaknesses, but rather hangs on God's manifold strength. Apart from Jesus Christ, we bring nothing to God the Father but the sheer disgrace of need and emptiness. The natural person possesses not the slightest particle of righteousness, until the Lord grants him to find mercy and be born again into the hope of eternal life. And so, look again at verses 9 and 10 as we read this, with this meaning packed into it, and allow the worship 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to well up in your hearts. Look at it. Verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Praise God. And what we have said is that our faith in Jesus connects us to the eternal purpose of God Almighty. But what we need to then ask is, how does that happen? How does that connection take place? How exactly does God's eternal purpose reach down into space and time, into our lives, and connect us to Jesus through faith? How does God's purpose overcome our willful, sinful resistance of Him? Well, first off, remember we've already established that God's eternal purpose is most clearly and fully seen when Jesus Christ came to earth in the form of a man and abolished death and brought life. But now we're asking, since salvation is not based on works, but is based on His purpose, how does an individual go from willingly choosing to reject Jesus to willingly choosing to believe in Jesus? In other words, how is one born again, as Jesus calls it, as Peter calls it in 1 Peter 1.3? How does God's purpose and grace open one's eyes to faith? And if you ask any Christian that question, they're going to say, well, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit causes one to be born again. The Holy Spirit works in the heart and changes the heart. But even then, how does the Holy Spirit do that? What are the means that the Spirit uses here on the ground in space and time to make that happen? And 2 Timothy chapter 1 does provide a glimpse of the means of grace that God uses to grant saving mercy to a sinner. Look at verse 5 again. And as we look at verse 5, we see one of the means of grace that God uses to grant saving mercy to a sinner is through a sound gospel heritage. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And so there's a gospel lineage here. There's a gospel heritage here. And we're given a very clear picture of how Timothy came to faith. The gospel was received and entrusted to his grandmother and mother, and they in turn passed it on to Timothy. These are the means of grace that the Spirit uses to bring about saving faith. And so I want you to listen to and sit under the clear implications of verse 5. Mothers and fathers, grandparents, older siblings even, listen carefully. Your chief job as a parent or as a grandparent or as a family member is to make disciples of your children, which means that children are not here for you in that they're supposed to complete you. They are here for the fame of Jesus' name, which means that everything you do from your parenting philosophy or your grandparenting philosophy to the details of how you carry out your parenting philosophy to the details of how you carry out your grandparenting philosophy. Everything you do should be guided by a desire to raise a disciple of Christ. 
And yes, discipline is necessary to raise a disciple of Christ. And so the clear implications of verse 5 is that the most immediate goal of Christian families is to pass the gospel on to the next generation. God has chosen to entrust you with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the goal of Christian families is to train the little hearts of our children to love and cherish Jesus Christ. And by entrusting you with gospel truth, God is mandating that you labor to pass the gospel on to your children. This is the means of grace, or at least one of the means of grace that God uses to turn a heart towards Christ. And remember, this is not a formula. It's not a formula with a, with a set of how-tos. It's not a formula. And, and there's no guarantees in this, which means we have to remember that if our children go off and they stray from the faith, we still labor. And we labor primarily in prayer at that moment. We pray for them that God's grace would be at work. And so we're asking, how does God overcome the sinful resistance of sinner? well, sinners? Well, one of the means of grace is a, is a strong gospel heritage. We see that mentioned in verse 5. And certainly there are other means of grace that we don't have time to get into this morning. We see two more mentioned in this chapter alone. Preaching in verse 11, and then prayer, which I just referenced, in verse 18. And then certainly there's other means of grace, kind of just the ordinary way that God brings about faith. And again, in all this, we have to remember it's not a formula, but it is at least partly how God chooses to overcome the sinful resistance through His Spirit of those He has called. And one of the things we emphasize here at Trinity Reformed Church is the need to labor for, to pray for, and teach towards establishing that gospel heritage within our families, remembering we're totally dependent on the Lord in all of it. And so in conclusion for this morning, the Christian story asserts that he who is beyond space and time, he who is uncreated and eternal, took on human nature, descended into the universe that he made, died and rose from the dead. And in that resurrection, we read in verse 10 that he abolished death, which means you Christians in the room, you who have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear death. Because through Christ, you've already abolished it. And that then means if you don't have to fear death, well, then you don't have to fear anything. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we know that we are not worthy even to be your handmaids. Much less, Father, are we worthy to be your sons, daughters, and heirs. And so we thank you that because of Christ's death and resurrection, by your free grace, we are partakers of the privileges of your kingdom, chief among them that the death defeater is on our side. We pray all this for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's Trinity Reformed K I R K dot com. Oh.